Rowdy bunch this morning. I like it. All right. My name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, So glad you're joining us today. Uh, I work with the college and young professionals here. We call it the Greenhouse. That's right. Got my cheering section right here. Thank you for being here. Um, And I would just want to say that if you're in that demographic, you consider yourself a college and young professional, we would love to meet you and help you get better connected. We've got a great community here and and, um, we've got a lot to to uh, be thankful for this morning. Let's, uh, let's pray and we'll dive in to what I believe God has for us. God, we give thanks to you, Father, today for all the truths that we just sang. The, the, the fact that at one point in our lives, we were outside of grace, that we were outside of, um, of forgiveness, that we were prisoners. You set us free. And God, I know there's, there's people uh, all over this city who, who need to hear this message. They need to um, come into an understanding of what it means to follow Jesus and, and know what, what uh, the, bl- the blessing is that we have in Christ. And so, God, we, we pray that you would, you would uh, raise us up as a church to be uh, your men and women in this area for, that, for, the, for the sake of the gospel. Um, we thank you for our time today. We pray that you'd help us to be hearers of your word and doers, that we would uh, be attentive and uh, that your spirit would would move in our lives during this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever heard of a guy named C.T. Studd before? Kind of a Christian history moment here. Um, C.T. Studd was, uh, he grew up in a, in, a, in a family that was very wealthy. And when I try to imagine his life, I picture someone who, who plays soccer at like the premier, uh, in the Premier League. And, and he, was, he was that good at what he did. He, instead of playing soccer though, he played something called cricket. He was one of England's best cricketers, and he was also a very sharp young man academically. He was just a brilliant guy, and every sense of the word, he was a stud. He went to Cambridge to study as well as, as to play cricket. And during his days at Cambridge, something shifted in him. His brother got really sick and, and was on the verge of death, and somehow that just rattled him. He had become a Christian earlier in his teens, but really had just never really kind of been that serious about his faith. The gospel of Jesus Christ took a hold of his life in such a way that he walked away from all his worldly accomplishments so that he could help people who were far away have a chance of being rescued by the gospel. He and a a group of six other young men called the Cambridge Seven, after meeting Hudson Taylor, decided to leave their life with all its worldly promise and joined the China Inland Mission. Crazy story of sacrifice. When, when, in fact, when his, when his wealthy dad passed away, he, he received the entire inheritance, the entire estate, and he gave the whole thing away to advance the gospel all over the world. I read a blog this week, and, and the author included this as part of the story. It's a, a quote from C.T. Studd. He said this, As I believe I am now nearing my departure from this world, I have but a few things to rejoice in. They are these. He says that God has called me to China and I went in spite of utmost opposition from all my loved ones. That I joyfully acted as Christ told that rich young man to act, which is, you know, the rich young man was challenged to give away all that he had for the sake of the gospel. And three, that I deliberately at the call of God gave up my life for this work for the whole unevangelized world. 
My only joys, therefore, are that when God has given me a work to do, I have not refused it. And if you're new with us, you know, we've been working through our, a series here at, at New Hope called E2E, and Pastor Mark has brilliantly taken us through that. And then as Mark gets a breather, I have been kind of doing this off series as we've looked at the, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. And uh, as, I, uh, as I've looked at this letter, I just, I love it, and at the same time, I feel so challenged by it. One of the key themes is this. It's that God's joy is available to me and to you, regardless of our circumstances. We can experience joy even when life doesn't go the way we want it to go. And if your life's anything like mine, that's every day. Every day I want life to go left, and it goes right, right? I mean, I, am I the exception? If I am, I, I'm okay with that. But I feel like I'm just constantly getting curveballs. And I'm a sucker for the curveball. I'm constantly swinging and striking out. Because so often I attach my joy to my circumstances. But God gives us a radically different option through this letter and through the life of his servant, the Apostle Paul. Paul's life was, from a, from a worldly perspective, is pretty lame. He's in prison. His desire to see the people he loves the most is it's being thwarted. And yet all he talks about is joy and rejoicing. And today we're going to see this again, but maybe in a way that we haven't seen in previous weeks as we've worked our way through this letter. So we just have two verses we're looking at this morning. And so if you have a Bible or a web-enabled device, you can flip or tap your way to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 17. And this is what we read. This is what Paul wrote. He says this. He says, Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Well, let's tackle the concept of, of the drink offering first. See, there's two thoughts on, on the drink offering. There's Old Testament Jewish usage, and then there's Greek pagan tradition. In the Jewish sacrificial system, there were several sacrifices. And at the end of this long kind of sacrificial process, there was this drink offering. And it was about a quart of wine, and it would be poured out beside or around the altar. Well, what about the pagan world? Well, in, in Greek culture, the, the drink offering was usually a cup of wine again, but it was poured out on, on, on the ground to honor a deity. Also, when they wanted to seek their God in a special way, they would pour out some of their wine as a sacrifice that would help in, in their minds to kind of pave the way for their prayers. Over the years, it became a custom for some to just pour out just a little bit of each cup they drank, almost as a little kind of tithe or a sacrifice to their God. Maybe you've even experienced this in our culture today. Maybe a group of guys will pour out a little bit of their drink as they, as they think about a buddy who wasn't able to, to join them. Not exactly the same thing, but it, it comes from this ancient pagan practice. One writer I read said this. He said, some, like A.T. Robinson, who's a Bible scholar, suggests that since the Philippians came out of a, a pagan Greco-Roman culture, it's more likely that they would think of the la this latter type of sacrifice than the Old Testament drink offering. But either way, the basic meaning is the same. Both would involve taking a measure of wine, they would pour it out as a sacrifice that would please the God who was its object instead of using it for personal pleasure 
and drinking. The idea was that it was wasted as far as their personal use went, but it was spent in a sacrifice to their God instead. It's interesting that this writer uses that word spent to, to, as he's talking about Paul pouring out his life as a drink offering. Because the Greek word for that phrase sounds very similar to our word spend. In the Greek, if you look at the, the phrase to be poured out as a drink offering, it's the word spendomai. It comes from the, the, the verb spendo. And so for the Greek word, it, it means pour out as a drink offering. It, it also could also mean pour or to devote, to spend, to be ready to be offered. And so Paul was literally saying that even if I'm to be spent on the sacrificial offering of your faith. And so that really got me thinking about like, how do I spend my life? How do you spend your life? Have you ever thought about your life as a commodity? We only have so much of it. It includes everything about us. Our lives include our time and the way we spend our time or the way we waste our time. You ever hear people saying they just, they're just killing time? Our lives also include the gifts and the talents that we've been given and that we've either honed or we've neglected. Our life would also include our, our bank accounts or all the material possessions that we have. It's all of our life. And I want to get too dark with you, but, but our days are numbered. Our time is limited. I picture an hourglass with a finite amount of sand in it. At one point, there will no longer be any sand in the upper part of the hourglass. It'll all have passed through the bottleneck. And at the end of the, our days, we're going to look back and ask ourselves, how did I spend my life? How did I pour out my life? Did I live for myself and for all the things on my bucket list? Did I live to fulfill all my dreams or did I live for something bigger? Something greater, of greater value, something of greater significance, something of eternal significance? Did I live for myself or did I live to advance the gospel and the kingdom of God in this world? Now, I gotta be honest, I say this almost every time I preach, but when I preach, I preached to myself first. And as I was prepping this week, I felt really challenged because I sometimes struggle to have the mind of Christ. Can I just be honest with you? I'm, I'm, I really struggle with where our culture's at. I struggle big time with this. And I work with college students and I've been on a college campus for 25 years. And so I remember when the college campus was an amazing place to be. It was the meeting of the minds. You could wrestle and grapple with all the big picture questions like, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What's my life about? Is there a God? Is there an afterlife? It was the greatest place in the world to be. And it's become so much of a different place. It's so hostile. It's so different. And quite honestly, sometimes it's just so much less enjoyable. And so at times as I've wrestled with this in my life, and again, this is more of my private time. I thought, well, maybe I should just go do something different with my life. Maybe I could just go fish my life away. And then I read Philippians, and I think about Roman culture and the, and the pagan environment where Paul invested his life. And, I, and I'm so challenged because I think, like, we don't have altars to unknown gods on our campus. 
We, we don't have like, you know, where you're walking by a, a, you know, a, a temple and you see cult prostitutes. I think it's T.T. Studd too. He said, some want, want to live within the sound of chapel bells, but I want to run a mission a yard from the gates of hell. I'm so challenged when I think about these, these followers of Jesus and how they, they thought about their life. Regardless of my circumstances, regardless of the condition of the campus, am I willing to spend my life for the sake of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom of God in this world? Are you willing to be poured out as a drink offering? Are we willing to have our lives spent for the sake of Jesus and others? Listen, things haven't changed all that much since Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi. Really not all that different of a place. The desire to be self-focused in the first century was strong. The desire to be self-focused in our culture today is strong, so strong. Same challenges we experience today exist in the first century. Jesus, in the first century, told his followers this. He said this in Mark. Mark records it in his gospel, Mark 8. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He said, forever wants to save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? And so if you and I try to save our lives, we're gonna lose them. But if we follow Paul as he followed Jesus, if we're poured out as a drink offering, if we spend our lives completely and wholeheartedly for Jesus, we're gonna find the truest life. Let me ask you this. What does this passage force you to wrestle with in your heart? What it makes me grapple with is this. Do I believe God? Do I trust his words and his promises? Am I gonna live by faith and the one who loved me and gave himself for me? See, obedience is rooted in trust. All of this comes down to faith. It's a faith issue. Do I believe that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, like the writer of Hebrews says? Do I believe that God's promises are legit? Am I gonna believe God or just do what I want to do with my life and ask God to bless it? I'll tell you what, in my almost 30 years of following Jesus, I've watched a lot of people ask God to just bless what they want to do with their lives. Instead of bringing their whole life to God and asking God, what do you want to do with me? How can I be poured out as a drink offering unto you? Now, some scholars believe that what Paul is saying here is that he senses death is right around the corner. And for sure, this could be a possibility. Remember, Paul's in prison. 
He's awaiting a trial. That very well could mean the end for him. But I also think that Paul could be saying, especially in light of what we looked at in previous sections of this letter, that no matter what, this is how I'm going to live my life. Christ is my life. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So when you read the way he starts this out, he says, even if. That phrase to me doesn't sound like Paul is expecting death. Paul doesn't seem overly concerned or pessimistic about like martyrdom happening right around the corner. As one commentary writer put it, his language seems more reflective, which I would agree with. It seems to be him putting into words thoughts about his life and its meaning, which is very different than what he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, another place where he talks about being a drink offering. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So by the time you get to 2 Timothy, Paul knows that at that moment, death is probably right around the corner. Okay, so Paul says, even if I'm going to be poured out as a drink offering, and then he says this, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. A couple things to note here. I've got three. One is Paul rejoiced in the progress that these Christians were making in their faith. The Philippian Christians were, uh, were growing in, in their faith. As God worked in them, they were working out their faith in significant ways. You can see evidence of this by the way they were moving away from just being self-focused to being others-focused. One of the things that's, that happens in this letter is you can see that the Philippians actually gave a large financial gift to help Paul with this ministry. They were very sacrificial in the way they were thinking. So Paul took great encouragement in the progress that they were making. Through their giving, they actually enabled him to be a drink offering. And so Paul rejoiced in their faith regardless of what it cost him. That's the first thing. The second thing to note is that in this ritual, the, the drink offering was secondary to the sacrificial offerings. Remember, I mentioned there was, there was a number of sacrificial offerings, and then at the very end, there was the drink offering. And so the way Paul sets this up, he was essentially saying that they were primary and he was secondary. Very humble way of communicating. I think it really represented Paul's mindset. He saw these other people as first and he saw himself as second. He didn't want to build this whole thing around himself. His focus was to make Jesus preeminent and then to look at the needs of this church before himself. And then the last thing to note is Paul had joy in spending his life for the sake of these people. The outside world might have shaken their head and seen Paul's life as a waste. But not Paul. He couldn't imagine any better way to spend himself than for the sake of the gospel and these people. And really, that theme is so prevalent here at the end of verse 17 and all of verse 18. Paul took great joy in how this church lived out their faith. I love the way one writer puts it. He says this, Paul did not merely accept his lot as an apostle. He rejoiced in the faith of the church, no matter what the cost to him. 
for Paul to spend his life for the sake of the Philippians, it wasn't drudgery. It, it wasn't duty. It was joy. And I got to tell you, this is the appropriate time to say, I am so encouraged by this group of people. Not that I'm not encouraged by y'all, but I work with this group of people over here at the greenhouse. And I tell you what, God has used these young men and women in, in a profound way in my life. I have watched their sacrifice and, and their commitment to the gospel. And it has caused me to want to give more of my life for the sake of the gospel. And I just think that is what we want our lives to be like. I mean, we'd never want to underestimate how our choices to live for Jesus might radically encourage someone else. When I've thought about hanging up the towel, God has used these young people and their faith and sacrifice to draw me back in. So I just want to say thank you, Greenhouse. Paul ends a section like this. Verse 18, he says, Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. And so Paul turns around to this church and says, Rejoice with me. Rejoice with me even though I'm in these chains. Rejoice with me because I have joy from watching your faith. Rejoice with me even if my life circumstances don't improve. Rejoice with me even if because of my proclamation of the gospel, I end up in the grave. And again, the reason this is so encouraging has nothing to do with circumstances. It has everything to do with perspective. Jesus set us free. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer under the control of the devil. We've been rescued. I mean, the gospel is the greatest story, the greatest message we will ever know. This is the idea that God came to earth, took on skin. God, the son, became Jesus, the man, walked among us. He set up his tent in our neighborhood. He dwelt among us. He, he showed us what it would be like to be the, the, the perfect human, what it, was what it would look like to be truly human, lived a perfect life, could, could be the perfect offering, sin offering for us, was falsely accused, hung and died on a cross, the death of a criminal, so that he could make people like you and me, wretched, awful people, he could make us holy. He could take our sin away from us and, and give us his righteousness. That's amazing. And so if you're in a place right now where this is kind of new to you, just know that's what we're talking about here. It's the gospel. And so somebody who would respond to that, who would say, I want what you've done for me, Jesus. I want you to apply that to my life. I need you. That person would experience all that we're talking about. They would move from being in this kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Our entire sin debt has been canceled. We have a new identity. We're children of God now. We're permanently 
part of God's family. He puts his Holy Spirit in us. And the Spirit of God now is someone who leads us and helps teach us and guide us through life. We have eternal life. We have the confident hope of the resurrection. We no longer have to live in the fear of death. We can have joy regardless. We have so many reasons to rejoice, and none of them are circumstantial. Do you, do you hear that? I'm not saying we have reasons to rejoice because life is going the way we want it to. I'm saying we can rejoice in spite of whatever. And Paul's putting it in front of us again that we can have incredible joy as we spend our lives, as we pour out our lives for the sake of Jesus, his gospel, and the advancement of his soon coming kingdom. Before he died, C.T. Studd wrote, wrote this poem. Normally I quote some kind of country music on a Sunday morning. And, and so today we're not going to see a dog die or a relationship broken or a, something about a big truck. We're going to read a poem that is very, maybe you've heard part of this before, but it's a very profound poem. This is what he wrote. He said, two little lines I heard one day Traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice. Bidding me selfish gains aims to leave, only to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And then he ended with this. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. C.T. gave his life for the advancement of the gospel. What will you and I do? I want to give you a couple things to think about as I kind of bring things to a close here. The first thing is, do you really believe Jesus is who he says he is? And do you believe that the promises he's given to us are real? I want you to think about that. How much are your life choices made based on your faith in Jesus? And how many of your life choices are made based on the sight of what this world has to offer you. Second thing I want you to consider is this. How can you move from someone whose joy is tied to your circumstances to someone who has joy regardless? Again, I think it all comes down to perspective. Paul had two perspectives that I think really affected his life. The first one is 
he had this perspective that Christ is his life. And if he was to live, it would be for him. So when adversity and suffering came, he saw it as part of living for Jesus. And the second perspective he had is Paul had an eternal perspective. He wholeheartedly believed that one day he was going to be with Jesus, and that changed everything. And then the third thing I want you to consider is this. I want you to consider starting this week the practice of spending your life. I want you to consider giving. Giving your, your money, your possessions. And in, 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 in a sense, investing them for the sake of the gospel. Maybe you're already doing that. That's awesome. If you haven't ever been a part of doing that before, I want you to consider doing that. You can give to the church here. You can give to other organizations that are focused on the gospel. Consider giving your time. Consider investing your life in people, that your neighbors who are far from God. The people in this church who, you know, probably would love to have somebody come alongside of them and encourage them and help them grow in their faith. And your, your, your talents. How can you use the things that God has given you, the, 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 the talents, the gifts? How can you leverage those things for the sake of the gospel? So we're going to transition to a time of communion here. There's, there's one other place that we see this idea of a drink offering mentioned in the New Testament. It's in the Gospels. And, and I'm going to share with you from Luke's Gospel. Jesus said this. He said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do you know what the cup he's referring to? Is the drink offering. Jesus referred to his life as the drink offering. And his blood would be poured out as the ultimate offering. And on the cross, when the soldier took his spear and jabbed Jesus in the side, the drink offering was made. Jesus' blood was poured out. the drink offering that would usher in the greatest blessing ever. It was a reconciled relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son. Peace with God. Forgiveness of sin once and for all. And so we, as a church, we celebrate communion once a month, beginning of every month. And, and our practice is typically to look at 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he, he broke it, and he said this, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This drink offering, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unman unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For any, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So our idea, the idea there is that 
we'd love for you to have a couple minutes to just examine yourself. Communion is for anyone who's put their faith in Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a chance to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. And we have um, stations in the front and in the back, and you can come up, and it's like a two-cup system, so you just grab one cup, and there's a little piece of bread in there, and there's a little bit of grape juice. And what we're going to do is have you hold on to that for a minute until the very end. And then uh, we'll come back together and we'll worship together as a, as a body. But when you're examining yourself, I wanted to mention this. The idea there is I think there's two, a twofold thing going on. There's the, I'm examining myself horizontally. Like, where are my issues at with the people around me? I think that was what was going on in the church here. There were issues in the church where believers weren't thinking about each other. They weren't considering the other person. So think about that first. And then the other thing to consider is your vertical. Like, where, where might there be something where you're out of step with God in your life? And so uh, Michael's going to play, and then uh, you can examine yourselves and then come forward, and then I'll come back up in a moment. <laughs>